We're heading towards what's the high point of the year for us as followers of Christ. It's not Christmas. It's not New Year's. It's not even Stampede Week. Can you believe it? No, the high point for followers of Jesus is Holy Week and Resurrection Sunday, what we call Easter. What would our lives be like if the events of the final week of Jesus' life here on earth never took place? We wouldn't be gathering here today this weekend or any weekend. We would not have the church or the church community That Holy Week, that one stretch from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, provides the foundation for our existence as the Church of Jesus Christ. It was a week that truly transformed history. So it is fitting that we take time over this season of Lent to examine the events of that Holy Week. This weekend and in the weekends to come, we will be walking through the gospel accounts of the last days of Jesus' life, Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. This weekend, we will be looking at the gospel passage that actually sets up that week. It's Luke 9, 51 to 56. And we might wonder still, even at this point, why are we doing this? Maybe we think, I have nothing to learn. This is like watching an old TV rerun I've watched many times before, and there's nothing new for me. I think N.T. Wright helps us out in a book he wrote called The Challenge of Jesus when he said this, We cannot assume that by saying the word Jesus and still less the word Christ, that we are automatically in touch with the real Jesus who walked and talked in first century Palestine. So at the outset, we need to ask a few, perhaps very basic questions that can guide our inquiry into the the Holy Week. Very simple questions like, who is God? Who is Jesus? Why does God the Father and Jesus the Son live out the mission of the kingdom of God in the particular way that they do? Each week we're going to be wrestling with these questions because we want to be in touch with the real Jesus, don't we? And we want to know more deeply and more clearly who the Father in heaven is, right? You're supposed to say right. 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 I was like, are they disagreeing with me? I feel... I don't know what's happening. Uh, Okay, so let's read our passage. It is Luke 9, starting with verse 51. And friends, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. And this is what it says. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and he rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Let's pray. And so, God, we thank you that as we... Uh, grapple with your text this morning that we can go into it singing your praises, alleluia, blessing you, Father, Son, and Spirit. And God, we come before you not to posture today or to look Christian or to appear Christian, but to be humble before you and seek your work in our hearts. And so help us to do this by your grace. Amen. One thing that makes Luke's gospel unique is that Luke is a Gentile. All the other gospels are written by Jewish 
men, but in this specific one, it's written by a Gentile. And he wrote it because he wanted to write it in a way that would help his fellow Gentiles understand the story of Jesus, to receive it and embrace it. And, and, and so he wanted to write a specific one in that way. If you're doing the Lent reading plan, you're already getting a sense of how Luke works as a writer and the kind of detail and attention that he gives to the various elements of the story of Jesus. That is the wonderful thing about having four Gospels, four stories of the life of Christ, is that each one, like a diamond, reflects. It may reflect, but what I mean to say is it reflects. Uh, Reflects different aspects uh, and characters in the story of Jesus in an illuminating and helpful light. And why? Why do we need so many accounts? I think it's because God wants us to know his son in vivid detail. It's it's what God wants. And if you haven't jumped in uh, yet to the Lent readings, feel free to jump in now. We've already been doing them for a few days, but just go on the website and be great for you to participate with the, the whole church community. So our text. This is a small, perhaps innocuous looking passage, a strange little story that sort of presents a not a very idyllic picture of the disciples But Luke, for some reason, places this story here as a significant pivot in the broader story that he is telling about Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, So it's a pivot point for him. There's kind of a first big section, and now this is the pivot for the second section in Luke. Up to this point, we have followed along with a number of happenings in Jesus's life. The infancy narratives, the ministry of John the Baptist, the beginning of Jesus's ministry, Jesus in Galilee, And then where we arrive, from Galilee to Jerusalem in 951. The accounts of Jesus' birth and early life are packed with surprising and even shocking stories. And these kind of break in to Jesus' little hometown in Nazareth, where he grew up. There's about 400 people there. There are just a few little clans, families. Uh, They're a very conservative group, and people lived there for many, many years. Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, are the primary witnesses to all these events that are happening to Jesus as an infant. Of course, Mary's pregnancy herself was miraculous. The text says that the Holy Spirit and the power of the Most High were going to overshadow her. And so so the birth of Jesus, the inception of Jesus. Mary's cousin Elizabeth, who is an older and barren woman defying expectation, she too becomes pregnant. And in a kind of a delightful story in Luke, when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and they're both pregnant and Mary comes in, I don't know what, how people would greet in those days. Maybe she said, oh, yoo-hoo, right? I'm here, Elizabeth. But when she said her comment, said her greeting, the baby that was in Elizabeth's womb leapt. And the text says that then Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. It must have been something for Mary Mary to observe that and to share that experience with her relative. And then, of course, Zachariah becomes mute, Elizabeth's husband, uh, and he does not speak again until the birth of John. But when John is born, suddenly it's like his tongue is unfurled and he begins to prophesy over his own son. And everybody around him is saying, what is happening? What is going on? And then when baby Jesus is taken to the temple in Jerusalem for his purification, the family encounters two aged and deeply godly people who immediately recognize the infant Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's prophecies about a Messiah and a Savior. First is Simeon, 
He, and you know, like some people, you bring a new baby in, they just want to grab the baby and hug the baby or whatever, but he just grabs baby Jesus and he begins to prophesy over him. And he says this, my eyes have seen your salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people in Israel. Next up is the prophetess, Anna. And she was a devout and sagely woman who the text says, after she met Jesus, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Jesus to all who, for, who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. You hear that? Sense of purpose, direction, and calling all ready for this little infant to be a revelation to the Gentiles and the redemption of Israel. And so we, we see this purpose is on Jesus already. All of these witnesses, Joseph and Mary, Zachariah and Elizabeth, Simeon and Anna, all testify to the purpose for his life. And his purpose comes into focus when he begins his public ministry a number of years later when he turns 30. He starts by healing a man with an unclean demon. And you know, I need to point out a question here to Luke. Is he suggesting that there's a clean demon? You know, unclean, clean. It seems like kind of an odd thing to me. Uh, anyhow, so this man, this man is cleansed, <laughs> uh, experiences this uh, removal of this demon, and then Simon's mother-in-law is healed in 438. And it says, right after this, now when the sun was setting, so it's been a long day of ministry, all those who, who had any, any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on them and they were healed. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God, making this declaration. And this healing of diseases and casting out of demons continues throughout the next few chapter. he, chapters. He cleanses a leper, he heals a paralytic, he heals a man with a withered hand. And again in 619, it says that a large crowd of sick people sought to touch him for power came out from him, and he healed them all. Well, these are two very mundane little kind of word combinations, all those and them all. Sounds like you're in the southern states, you know, them all. Uh, but they are, they are actually beautiful words that describe the overflowing nature of God's grace. We might be stingy at times and conditional in our love and kindness, but thankfully, God has never been this way. Here's some biblical interpretation 101. All those and them all equals everyone. Everyone who came to him were healed. But not all things are smooth sailing. There are wonderful signs of healing and teaching and confrontations with demons that indicate the origin and nature of Jesus as the son of God, that he is the Messiah, that a new kingdom is coming into this world. And some people were so delighted and excited and pumped up about this. They were hungry for it. You might even say they were starving for this new reality of the gospel that Jesus was bringing. And yet despite the miracles, despite the wonderful things, some just did not like Jesus. There's a resistance to Jesus and the kind of ministry he represents, the kind of posture he has towards the world, the kind of kingdom he came to inaugurate. Some people were pushing back against it. 
The first resistance to Jesus we hear about is in chapter 4. Right after Jesus returns from his temptations in the desert, the text says this. He returned after his temptation in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout or through the surrounding country. And so Jesus is coming into his own here a bit. And there's a buzz about this ardent young teacher and healer, and it's spreading. But before it goes too far, he decides, I'm going to take a pit stop back in my hometown. I'm going to go back to Nazareth and uh, see, see my home community. While at, while at home, he goes to the synagogue, and he gets up, and he reads a scroll. He un- opens the scroll. It happens to be a passage from Isaiah that's a prophecy about the Messiah, the anointed one who is coming. And he lets that scroll roll back up. And he said, this prophecy is fulfilled in your midst today. And people are kind of shocked by this. And they think it's a bit of a gutsy, maybe a gutsy thing to say. And you would figure in his hometown, they would be, they'd celebrate this. They'd be excited. They'd want say, yay, one of ours is, is the Messiah. Or one of ours is going to lead us in this liberation from captivity. But that is not the case. The room Jesus discerns as he's standing there is also full of cynicism and doubt. And so Jesus calls it out. He knows their hearts and how his proclamation stirred up everyone's cynicism and defensiveness. And so he says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. The text says they have heard of some of his miraculous work he did in Capernaum. So they, were, they said, what, you, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here. Show us. Show us, hotshot, what you can do. So Jesus refuses. He just outright refuses. And this is what he says to them, his response to their cynicism and doubt. He says, but in truth, and this is in 425, says, but in truth, I tell you, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut, shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, Jewish people, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, also not a Jewish woman. Do we get the point? And there were many lepers. He has a second illustration. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, not a Jewish person. Very pointed. Yes, Jesus knows the intentions and the motivations of their heart. He knows they are not actually open to God's working and his radical kingdom reality coming into their midst. Instead, they're simply testing him. And so he refuses. The potential for miracles in Nazareth is doused by the community being self-invested and cynical. And here we see Jesus as a prophet, already challenging the regressive and judgy spirituality in his hometown. And the text says, what happens next? How do they respond to his hometown friends and family? When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. This in, church potluck goes toxic. (laughs) What seems like a nice family church suddenly turns sinister when the Son of God 
won't put out the way they want. So Jesus leaves and moves on with his ministry back to Capernaum. And so a kind of pattern develops here in Jesus' ministry from chapter 4 forward where Jesus does a miracle or something beautiful happens. He casts out a demon. He feeds the 5,000. He calms the storm. And the result is that many are blessed and encouraged and excited. But at this, in equal measure, others are wrathful and angry and oppositional. For every good thing he does, his opponents are right there to question him, critique him so seeds of doubt with the crowd, criticize him at every turn. His critics are like the paparazzi that followed Lady Diana, a constant thorn. I counted 11 times from this first instance in chapter 4 up to the passage we're reading in chapter 9 that Jesus' ministry and work to establish and bring God's kingdom to earth is actually actively resisted by demons or Pharisees or other people who are just opposing him. And so uh, in 6.11, we already see the considerable threat that Jesus is to the Pharisees when after one of his healings, it says their response to it was they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So it seems that every step Jesus takes in loving the world, there is pushback the other way. With some forces are political, some are spiritual, pushing back. And I think we call this escalating. You know, sometimes we see this if you like watching hockey or some other, like basketball, one guy kind of hits another guy and he takes exception. That's always the line. You've dishonored me somehow. And so they'll kind of hit him back and then there's a punch and then there's another, and then there's, there's a brawl going on. The metaphor doesn't really hold, though, because Jesus is not aggressively pushing or trying to hurt. His actions are not fueled by hatred. Instead, he is intentionally pushing at toxic religion and political cruelty and social oppression. And what does he push with? Acts of care and love and forgiveness that are the overflow of the love, care, and relational harmony of the Trinity itself. You know the most powerful part of the story of the opposition of the Pharisees to Jesus? Underneath the debates and arguments about Jesus and his mission is that Jesus loved the Pharisees. He loved them. This is weird to me because I don't like them. They seem like a bunch of jerks. But Jesus, in a very unlike me way, in Luke 7.36, upon the invitation of one of the Pharisees, it says that he went into his house and reclined at the table. And we know, some of us know that that was a common thing to kind of recline in those days when people socialized like that. But when I see the word reclined with the Pharisee and knowing the character of Jesus, we know that reclined sounds more like being relaxed and chilled out, and even enjoying being with this man who is a Pharisee. So as chapter 9, so as we arrive at chapter 9, we know that this person, Jesus, had a lot of unique and wonderful things that happened to him when he was in his early days, and now through him in his ministry years. His life is blessed and anointed and surprising in even strange ways. We also have a sense that his life has a destiny, It has a direction. It has a greater purpose. And we start hearing about it in little snippets throughout chapter 9. In 9.22, he says, 
to his disciples, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then a few verses later, at Jesus' transfiguration, when he's on Mount Hermon and his clothes become dazzling white and Peter and the others see him, you know, I think this is the ultimate selfie moment. You know, if Peter had a phone and the transfiguration was behind him, he could be like, hey, look where I am, right? <laughs> Let's try to be a little bit of an application. Uh, anyhow, so Jesus is with Moses and Elijah. Peter is observing this. And in 931, it says that as they were, con- Peter could overhear them conversing and they spoke. This is what it said. They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Then in 944, Jesus himself says to the disciples, and he keeps trying to help them understand what his purpose and goal is. But he says this, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So we're given hints, signs, bits of revelation about the ultimate purpose of Jesus's life. We might think that these words We might think that words that describe a future of suffering and departure and rejection and violence, all these things that were in Jesus' future, might dissuade him from going to Jerusalem. Maybe in his humanity, his human side, some DNA or gene that promotes self-preservation would fire up or kick in, and Jesus might go, you know, let's not go to Jerusalem. I heard Egypt is fantastic this time of year. And so... We have a little slide of the map of where Jesus would have been traveling. You can see Capernaum way up there on the north and then Nazareth below and he'd follow the Roman road and go south. And the intention was to go through uh, Samaria to Jerusalem. So back to our text, our first line of our text. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Why? Why? Why does he not avoid this suffering? I think there are a couple of reasons why he does not veer away or avoid Jerusalem, but instead he does actually does the complete opposite. He doesn't just uh, decide to go to Jerusalem. He steals himself. He sets his shoulders. He gets a glint in his eye of determination to go where his father in heaven is calling him. And the first reason I think this is, is because he knew that he was not going to Jerusalem alone. He wasn't going alone. And it might actually be be weird to suggest this idea because in a very human way, he was alone. We have noted the Pharisees' opposition to him. Of course, there are other groups that resisted him, other religious groups like the Sadducees. Then there are the Roman authorities. They didn't really care for any Jewish person who was stirring up up any sort of foment or or, uh, any of that kind of stuff. And we see in 9-7, Herod the Tetrarch is at this point taking note of Jesus' activities, which is a very ominous note in the text because, of course, this is the guy who, uh, when this guy put John the Baptist in, in jail and then later uh, had him beheaded and his head put on a platter. So not a good person. Um, and now we see in our text that in addition to the religious and political resistance to Jesus, there's also local tribal hatred that, that is a problem. 
The Samaritans who do not get along with Jewish people seem actually willing, according to our text, to assist Jesus and his disciples on their travel through Samaria until they figure out or understand what his destination is. It's like, oh, you're going to Jerusalem? Well, then forget it. We're not going to receive you. Old hatreds die hard. On top of all this, his own disciples are not really with him either. Sure, they are physically with him. They are part of his entourage. They are walking side by side with him and sharing food with him along the way. But they do not seem to fully understand or grasp what Jesus' ministry and kingdom are really all about. I'm saying they're not on the same page as Jesus because he had already taught them about turning the other cheek and loving your enemies in chapter 6, these famous teachings. Yet what is their first reaction to the Samaritans when they refuse to welcome Jesus? What did the text say? And when the disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? So violent. Everyone's so violent around Jesus. Everyone but him. So he turned and he rebuked them. And they went to another village. The disciples were with him physically, but their hearts were certainly not in tune with his heart. I think this should be a sobering thought for us here today. Is it true we can be physically at church with other Christians, but our hearts are not in tune with Christ's heart for the world? So it seems Jesus is out of all options. Who is left? I think we can say with confidence that though he seemed to have little support from those around him, that he did have the empowering and support of the Father in heaven. But in some ways, does this just not seem like enough? To be alone and doing something incredibly hard? Luke sees the solitary nature of this part of Christ's journey, and it tweaks something in his mind. He's like, ah, as I've As I recall this, it reminds me of another story. It reminds me of the suffering servant in the the great prophet Isaiah in his book. There's four songs of the suffering servant. And this reminds me of song number three, this prophecy. And here's the words. I gave my back to those who strike and, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. Does that remind us of a line from our text? I have set my face towards Jerusalem like flint, like granite. I am determined going forward. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Why does this suffering servant described by Isaiah set his face like flint even though he knows he will suffer? Because he knows that God will help him. He knows that God is with him. He knows that God is walking this hard road side by side with him. But there is more than God just being with us or being with him in this hard situation. The suffering servant knows that if he is pursuing a calling to love, and serve God, and what he is doing is God's will, it is worth it. It is worth it. The suffering is worth it. This could be a big encouragement 
for us as we face hard things in our lives. Sometimes there's a great cost to loving another person, isn't there? To love someone can be painful because we willingly sacrifice to help them. Are there any parents here? Any parents? You know where I'm going? Uh, Has it ever hurt you to love your kids? The sacrifice? What you give up? But it's 100% worth it. It's 100% worth it. It hurts. You work at things. You suffer sometimes for the greater good. Perhaps, and the, the question can come to mind too, perhaps if we never sacrifice or hurt for others, we're not really loving them. You know, if we just avoid suffering, I'm not going to suffer. I, I'm just going to avoid that as much as possible in our lives. Jesus faced the trial at Jerusalem, but we also face overwhelming trials at times in our lives. You know, the Jesus' trial and challenge in Jerusalem isn't supposed to be a diminishment of our struggles. It's not like it's God really, Jesus really suffered, so what we, we just don't, our stuff doesn't really matter. That's not the point of the text. But we can also face overwhelming trials. How can we move forward in them? How can we set our face to dealing with an eating disorder with one of our kids or a conflict with a really difficult neighbor or the death of a loved one? How do we move forward? How do we set our face and our posture so that we're, we're moving in that direction? Well, I think one way is by knowing if what you are facing is God's calling on you as a person, a family, or a church community, if you're challenged to take up is there because you are a Christian, because you are a disciple, because you are a faithful follower of Jesus, and it is something God is prompting you to do, then God will be with you in a unique and powerful way, maybe a way you've never known before or experienced before in your life. Hebrews 10.39 says it this way, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. That is not the identity of the people of God, is to shrink back and be destroyed. What is our identity? But to those who have faith and are saved, to have faith in God and be saved, his salvation. God is enough sometimes when we're alone on the road. We need to embrace that line. We are part of the kingdom of God. We are part of those who have faith and are saved. The second reason he sets his face towards Jerusalem, despite the pain and challenge it will cause, is very simple, a very simple thing. It's because of love. He loved his followers. John 13, 1 says it this way, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Jesus wanted to deal with the problem of sin and bring healing and restoration to his followers. The reality was that, this, that for this to happen, it needed to happen through the cross. But Jesus did not just hate sin as an ab- in an abstract way. You know, he's not a philosopher saying, oh, this is, we have an abstract theoretical problem or a theological problem. That's not the way he thought about it. He hated the practical effects of sin on people's lives. How sin affected humanity. How it made his disciples, instead of loving Samaritans, want to call down fire on them. How it made Pharisees delight in the law, but despise 
people's humanity and weakness. Help put crazy egomaniacs like Herod Tetrarch in power. Jesus wanted to free humanity, to live out their true design as the Imago Dei, the divine image of God. Sin had marred that image way back in Genesis 3. And ever since then, God had been trying to help humanity recover its truest form, its image in him. Even after Adam and Eve sinned, God never gave up on humanity. What did God do before he sent them out of the garden? He made them close. He made them close. God, the divine seamstress. A beautiful picture of God loving humanity right from the get-go, trying to help them overcome or deal with the damage that their sins created. Why did God do this? God didn't sin. God didn't invite chaos into the created order. Humanity did. Yet God's commitment to them, God, that faithful part of God's character, caused him to continually be seeking for ways to bring reconciliation between humanity and himself. That's kind of the story of the Bible, isn't it? It's God, it's just I'm trying again, I'm trying again, trying to rebuild this rapport with humanity. Maybe we might think at some point in humanity's crazy history of violence and hatred and brokenness that God might get frustrated and give up, maybe create another planet and start over, some new sentient beings. But he doesn't. Why? It's love. It's love. Psalm 136 is like a chant or litany about this truth of love where every verse ends with the line, for his steadfast love endures forever. It's a great psalm to read because it just keeps reinforcing that idea as you read it. And if you look through the psalm, there, there, there's a top, part A of the line and then part B is his steadfast love endures forever. And it's 26 times in that psalm. You hear that over and over. Now I know how to count. I know this is more than 26 times on the slide. Uh, but you know, we could have, we could just keep that slide going. We could make a hundred of those slides and we could, and God's love is still way more than that. Still enduring, it's eternal, still spills over, still on humanity. This is God's love. As Clark Pinnock has written, there's, there's hope only if the power of God's love breaks into history to heal it, a power that could not arise from the corrupted body of humanity itself. And so God's plan from way back with Abraham is to work in and through the people of Israel to bring forth his work of salvation on behalf of all people in the world. And thus, because of this enduring love for us, you know, all humanity, but for us, Jesus, in a sense, faces Jerusalem with a very serious de demeanor. But I also think there's joy. There's joy. It's challenging, but there's joy. The suffering servant sets his face like flint towards that goal of ultimately redeeming humanity for his steadfast love endures forever. Though no one around Jesus understood, not even his own disciples, he was going to radically love, that he was going to radically love Israel. He's going to love anyone who came into his sight lines from bleeding women to Roman centurions to tax collectors to Pharisees. But even more than that, he understood he was to be the suffering servant who would in his suffering help to ex extend his grace, forgiveness, and healing from this small corner of the world in ancient Palestine. Uh, 
beyond their borders into Rome and even beyond Rome into the known world at that time and even beyond that known world into the future and even into our lives for his steadfast love endures forever. So we might doubt God's love in our lives. This is a very real problem for many of us, especially those who suffer and feel abandoned or neglected by God. It's a hard place to be. But if you want to grasp how deep the Father's love is for us, the cross tells us, yes, God loves us. But before the cross, before the week that changed history, on the day before the week that changed history, we see the intention of God to love humanity. He set his face like flint towards Jerusalem for you and me. And that brings us in a very fitting way to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, this symbol, this reality of God's love for us. And so let's pray and prepare our hearts. And so Jesus, we thank you. We bless your name. But not only do we bless your name, we bless who you are. We bless the reality uh, that you love us, that you pour out your grace. And we thank you for this. We thank you even in this time that we can come before the table and these very tangible things that remind us of, of this invisible reality of your love. And so as we contemplate, we prepare our hearts. Lord, help those who need to receive your love today to be reminded and to experience you. Amen.